All right. I want you to, to see this video for starters. Many of you have seen this. It went pretty viral a few years ago, but I, I really feel as though it really speaks to where each one of us have been at some point in our life. Go ahead, Matthew. To shed a curiosity, why do they boy? What What's the point of it? Why do you find joy in taking innocent people and finding a way to make me do? not okay. What do they say to you? Call me, they make fun of my nose, they call me ugly, they say I have no friends. What'd they do to you at lunch? Put milk on me and put hand down my clothes, threw bread at me. Is it just you? Yep. Or is it other kids too that feel that way? Say it's other kids too. How's that make you feel? I that they do it to me and I feel sure don't want that they do it to other people because not okay. People that are different don't need to be criticized about it. Because it's not their fault. But if you are made fun of, just don't, don't let it bother you. Just stay strong, I guess. It's hard. But it'll probably get better one day. That, uh, I think that video has uh, really been a video that's spoken for a lot of people and, and things that they felt throughout their lives. The fear of rejection is probably the strongest influencer in all of our lives. Most of the decisions that we make growing up have to do with this fear of rejection. You know that day at school when everyone was getting immunized? You know Needle Day? You guys know that day? Horrible day. The whole class is on edge. Teachers will talk about that day, and here's why. When you get a needle or you experience any sort of pain, the brain releases opioids to compensate and to sort of make you feel better. So if you're getting a needle, your brain will release opioids in response, and that's why opioids are a powerful medication. But the brain also releases opioids in, in um, expectation of coming pain. So the few hours before getting a needle is just as painful for lots of kids. And this is why it's good to just trick your kids all together. And then just they'd show up and, oh, what's this lady here? Oh, my goodness. You know the lady with the facial hair? That lady. But the same is true with rejection. They find that opioids are also released when we feel rejection. It's fascinating. The brain responds in the same way that it does to actual physical pain because Rejection is the same thing as pain as far as our brain and our body is concerned. And it's also released an expectation of rejection. And so because of that, we live in fear of any sort of rejection and we avoid it at all costs. They did this interesting study called the line study. And this is what they did. They would find people to come in and they would have to decide which of three lines is the longest. And it's really obvious. There's a short line, a medium-sized line, and a long line. And they had 10 people that were a part of this study. Nine of them were actors. And nine of them were told to always vote for the second longest line. Here's how the study went. The first time they went through the, through the batch of three, the one person who wasn't the actor correctly identified the longest line, and no one else did. They looked around and were like, what the heck is going on? The second batch of three, in nearly every case, the person who was not the actor chose the second longest line, went with the group. 
This happened over and over and over and over again. People chose the line that everyone else did, even though they knew that they were wrong. This happened in 75% of the cases. They followed the crowd because they would rather be wrong than to than to face potential rejection from other people. They thought that maybe they were wrong somehow, but more than likely that they just didn't want to be considered the nerd or that guy thinks he's right all the time. They would rather be wrong than actually stand out. You see, our brains are wired to pursue acceptance. This is who we are. Not only does it create opioids when we're rejected, but when we are accepted, there's a reward. Approval is chemically addictive online. Did you know that if you post something on Facebook or Instagram and somebody likes it, something happens in your brain? A rush of endorphins to that reward center of your brain makes us feel approved and gives us a little buzz. Did you realize that? Girls know this. Girls always post pictures of themselves that look beautiful, and when another girl says, you are so pretty, you know what happens? Zaga! Endorphins. And girls do this all the time to each other and say, you are so beautiful. Lots of the times it's genuine and sincere, but other times just knowing full well that when they post something online, they're going to want a sympathetic audience. Is this, you guys know what I'm saying? And so it's actually addictive. We're so driven by acceptance that it's chemically a pleasing thing. When we find out that somebody has a crush on us, do you know what that does in your brain? It's like a Christmas tree. When you find out that somebody has spoken well of you, it's like, oh, public affirmation is the greatest thing for our brains. And so, because of this, we're driven by a fear of rejection and a desire for approval, and we need to be liked and fit in so we become people that we think other people will, be, will like. And if you kind of look at the way that we kind of got ready today, I mean, we brushed our teeth. For, I mean, in the last couple of days. I'm not saying necessarily right now. But we dressed a certain way that we did. How we did our hair for most of you. <laughs> that was an important thing. For how we sort of decide to talk, our friends that we choose, and all of these things, we, we make most, most of our decisions based upon like actually just fitting in and being approved. Nobody showed up here dressed like it's the 70s and, you know, or like having like crazy outlandish clothes because we don't want to actually be different and stand out because we want so badly to fit in and we hide all of our perceived flaws. Have you ever gone bathing suit shopping? I went one time, I was taking Emily to buy something and I forget what it was and there's all this, this bathing suit area and girls' bathing suits are specifically designed to hide flaws. Am I right? There's little flaps of fabric here and there and stripes that go this way and that way to, like, throw off your eye. You know what I'm talking about? Girls' bathing suits, it's actually like an art. It's just like, who does this research? But it's the truth. And then it's designed to accentuate other things that are considered to be desirable. And so we hide these flaws. I'll tell you what, we spend our lives on image management. Americans spent $16 billion on plastic surgery last year. <laughs> that number's hard to get. $55 billion on makeup. Untold billions on cars and diets and gym passes and everything else. And our social media, 
we, we put out this, this, this look that we want. And I think we're all the same. No one's, by the way, we're all in the same here. This isn't like anything we don't know. But every once in a while, something sneaks by us and it shows up on the Facebook machine. You're like, oh, look at that. That's me. Here we go. Here's a few that I found on my own page. See that picture there? You know what the comment somebody wrote under that? Are you missing teeth? <laughs> like, oh, thanks. Whoever that was. I actually got braces after that, so thanks, whoever did that. You see how that works? There's that one. Cameron made this for me. This was called Transformation Tuesday. <laughs> that one on the left there, that was me. Oh, there's me and Jill. That one on the left, that was LA trip one year where I got really, really sick, and I just, that's how I look. The next one is me and Jill. We, uh, we got... Yeah, we got an allergic reaction to the ice cream we were eating. Just kidding. You know, like if you take a picture doing this, like, it's what it does. Anyways, that's how we look. And then look at that one. I look like a turtle. <laughs> I actually look like, I, I lost a basketball game. And, uh, and so it was either me and Bear or, no, I forget exactly who. We had to shave our beards. Baxter did this, like, miracle shot from the three-point line and won. I shaved, and all the kids were laughing at me. They're like, you look so weird, and that's how I look. Uh, turtle. And, uh, you know, I'm fine at that. Or am I fine at that? I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> our carefully constructed image that we have right now will eventually die, and that's the problem. The glory fades. We age. I met my favorite goalie of all time, Grant Fuhr, and in my mind... Grant Fear is the fastest, most stealthy, like craziest reflex goalie in history. And then we meet him. And there behind the counter is this roly-poly old man. Dropped his pen. Took him 10 minutes to pick it up. The guy couldn't catch a cold. And there he is. The glory has faded before my eyes. And who cares 20, 30 years ago how people thought about his ability to save a puck? It just makes no difference. And every one of us in this place, me and Owen, were just watching this old man pass in front of our truck. And I said to him, you're going to be an old man one day, you know that? And he goes, I hope not. <laughs> I don't want to be like that. We all will. It's, this is the reality about us, is that this image that we do have right now, everyone in this room, is fading. And because of that, there is so much anxiety about that. One of my favorite statements is when I saw this soccer mom in a minivan, and she had a bumper sticker on the back, and it was so good. It says, I used to be cool. <laughs> I drove by her, and I gave her the thumbs up, and I, we, we knew what we were thumbs upping, but I'm sure she was cool, and I'm sure I feel that way all the time. You know what, kids? I wish you would have known me 20 years ago. I was so cool 20 years ago. I had all the right clothes, all the right everything, and I get it. But whatever image that we have now will die, and there's trauma in that. We're all in this together. All of us have two dreams that are common to us. I'm pretty sure that 99% of us have had the dream when we're flying. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? The dream where you, you wake up and you're like, ah, oh, it's the, fl not you, Lisa? Maybe you don't have a soul. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Lisa, you shouldn't be in... She falls a lot anyways. You shouldn't be up that high. <laughs> it's a common dream. But the other dream that's very common is the dream of, of showing 
up somewhere naked or barely clothed. Have you had that one, Lisa? No? Maybe you don't dream. Anyone else? I had this dream like a month ago. I have this dream an awful lot of showing up to school and you're just like at your locker, you can't get your lock open, and I'm in my underwear. No one else? This is a common dream, by the way. It's so common that most researchers have looked at this, Aristotle and Plato, and then later Freud, they all have spoken about this common dream. And here's what they have said, is that we all feel, we all feel like we have a fear of being exposed because we're so used to covering up and hiding. And, and so we all feel a little bit like frauds and fakes because we've become people that other people will like. And it's not necessarily a true copy of ourselves. We don't necessarily like what we wear, but other people like it. Or we, we don't necessarily like the music that we listen to, but we think we look cool listening to that music. Do you guys see what I'm saying? And so Freud has a lot to say about this. And Dante has this famous painting. It's called The Eighth Circle of Hell. <laughs> Sounds like merit. Okay, this is... The Eighth Circle of Hell. You got that, Matthew? No? Oh, no. Okay. Dante's got this painting, and it's, it's, you can Google search it later. It's, it's fascinating. And, and it's this image from hell. <laughs> and, and it's all of the people that he's ever known. And they're wearing these beautiful capes. And they're made of, like, metal. They're shining, and they're gorgeous. And all of these people are absolutely stunning. But they are a false image, and these beautiful and impressive capes that we're wearing are made of lead, and they're such a burden, and they're debilitating, and they're just like taking everybody down underneath these false images. And he says that these capes suppress our joy, and they steal the life of the church. And the reality is, is that there's a sweet hope that we find in Scripture There's really nowhere else that speaks much about pleasing men and our identity, but Paul tackles it head on. This man named Barnabas tackles it head on. The apostles go headlong into this complete reinvention of who they were. We see a man named John the Baptist who represents the kingdom. If I'm going to represent the kingdom, I don't know if I'm going to use him. But we're going to talk about a reinvention of the things that we strive for and, and kind of how we decide to choose what we wear and how we live, how we present ourselves on social media, how we present ourselves to each other, our children, our parents, and everybody. And, you know, let's just pause before we get into the actual scripture. And, and once again, just, just where you're at, ask the Spirit to fill you, to give you fresh revelation and spiritual eyes and ears, and then we'll continue from there. God, fill us with your spirit. Fresh revelation, God. God, you created us to live in community and to be accepted. And you also created us to be individuals 
and you created us to be secure. And God, there's a tremendous tension in that that we recognize. So I pray that by your spirit that that you would come and inform us and get that right on our behalf. Thank you, Father. Amen. Well, the book of Galatians is crazy. If you have your Bibles, open it to the book of Galatians. Remember, these are Celts. They're warriors and known as barbarians. They were considered dangerous. (laughs) And remember, they will kill you. (laughs) Can we show that picture again there, Matthew? I made this last time. There you go. There they are. When you... (laughs) I like it. There you go. When you think of Celts, you need to have this picture burned in your brain. <laughs> but they were dangerous. The Celts were in many wars. The Celts were considered barbarians. And so as Paul visited different areas, they warned them. They're like, you're going to Galatia? Galatia. The barbarians. And Paul writes them this crazy letter. And remember, he doesn't start it by saying, I thank God for you. Oh, you're so wonderful. No, he starts it off by saying, I am astonished at how quickly you deserted Jesus, you cowards. Okay, Paul, you're you're saying this to the warriors. And then Galatians 5 verse 12, this is what he also includes in his letter to these crazy people. As for those agitators, remember the ones that wanted to get them all circumcised, those are the agitators. I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Do you see what Paul is saying? He is saying, I wish these people that you're looking up to would castrate themselves, cut off their man stuff, get it over with. This is what he's saying. He's saying, castrate themselves. And the Galatians are like, Paul, we all have swords. Now Galatians 1 verse 10, this is what he says. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, being a servant of Christ is a whole nother way. He's writing this letter to the Galatians and he, he doesn't care what they think about him personally. He cares what they think about Jesus. He doesn't care about his image. He's not trying to please them at all. He's actually free. Paul actually said that he's learned to be content. He's free from all of this, by the way. In that image of, of the eighth circle of hell where, where we're carrying on these capes and these false images, Paul is over there waving, not caring what he looks like at all. And we're all like, how did you do this, Paul? How did you get rid of that cape? How did you get to the place where you are? Something happened to him. He was a murderer. Josephus, the historian, said that Paul used to breathe murderous threats. This word breathe had to do with like angry yelling. He said that he used to actually go from door to door and he would knock doors down and find people that were accused of worship. He would grab them, this is what Josephus says, by the hair and pull them out by the hair into the streets and then get people and order them to stone the person to death. So Paul did this. They would then throw rocks at the person and there would be blood everywhere. This is Paul. Children would be screaming. They'd be watching this. The children of the person getting stoned would be watching. Like, it is nuts. And so everybody knew that this was him and they were terrified of him. He was a terrible person. Then Jesus appears to him. 
on the road to Damascus and blinds him and says, why are you persecuting me? And he gets converted. But what happens is that the Christians are not believing it. It's like Kanye West's new album. Everyone's like, I don't know. We've heard your old stuff. We're not sure. And so Paul is this new creation, but nobody believes him. And, and there's rumors going around. Paul, yeah, he got saved somehow. I mean, his name was Saul. He got saved. Like, this is what happened. And nobody would take him in. Finally, this one guy named Barnabas takes him in. Look at this image. Okay, this guy changes everything. This is a cool image that this painter came up with that Barnabas is holding fire. Do you see that? It's this powerful statement that Barnabas had the very words of God. Flame always represented God. And he's got a letter there that he wrote. This is a man who dealt in the words of God. And Barnabas took Paul in and he built him up and he made him the man who would lead the church. We wouldn't be reading this book of Galatians without him. And who is this guy? His name used to be Joseph, and he was a Levite. And a Levite basically was an assistant to the priest in the temple, and they were the poorest. If you were a Levite, it meant you were dirt, dirt, dirt poor. They got a portion of the temple tax if there was anything left, but they had nothing. In Deuteronomy 12, when it talks about looking after the poorest of society, it says, look after the fatherless, the widows, the aliens, and the Levites. So Levites and the orphans are the same thing as far as financially, and that's who he was. And he did another crazy thing. Not only did he take Paul in, but in Acts 4, listen to what he did. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. See, being a landowner gave him status. If you had land, you could vote. If you had land, you could do trade. If you had land, when there were these great banquets, you got to sit near the head of the table with all the important people. So you'd walk into a banquet and you would just go right to the front and look down on everyone else because you're a landowner. So having land was everything. And here is this Levite. Somehow he got land. But what does he do is he sells it and gives it away. And in doing so, removes any sort of power or esteem that he had. And he humbles himself completely. And this is when he is given the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, the giver of life. And it becomes his identity now, Barnabas. It's mentioned 25 times later, all is Barnabas. He lived to elevate. He lived to encourage. And he couldn't care less about his status or his image. He just didn't care. He gave it all away. Listen to what Jesus says. Luke 14, this is, this is cra- I, I hope you understand this passage better now. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. The place of honor is near the head of the table. Whoever would be doing the wedding, there would be like the father, and he'd be at the head of the table. And then it would go basically in order of richness, richness, richness. At the bottom would be the poorest of the poor and the least status. 
Jesus says, don't take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. This is in front of everybody. You're sitting there. You're hoping nobody notices. It's like when you take a seat that's better than yours at a concert. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? You're just nervous the whole time. Anyways, and he comes up to you and says, you know what? You're going to have to move down. And everybody's watching and they're going, oh, this is embarrassing. So then you move down to the kid's table and it's embarrassing. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place because all the seats in the middle have already been taken. Do you see how that works? But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's huge. Jesus says, take the lowest place, humble yourself, elevate others. If you take this seat up here, everyone else is going to have to take a worse seat. He's saying, take the worst one so everyone else gets elevated. This is what Jesus says. He says, take it. Jesus took the disciples, and this is what he said. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and a servant to all. This is a radically different way actively humbling yourself. You see, humility is the most attractive thing that we see in other people, isn't it? It's so attractive. Somebody who's proud and arrogant, we detest. We hate it. Someone that elevates themselves, it's like nails on a chalkboard. You know what? There's two kinds of people that we all could be. The first person is the life-giving person. You know that person when you're with them and they just make you feel better about yourself and and they just, oh, they just bring life. They're like springs of water. Do you guys know who I'm talking about? Think about who those people might be. I love those kinds of people. And they're magnetic. And then there's a different kind of people. They're the consumers the soul suckers, the takers. And, and people go to great lengths to get out of their general vicinity. They self-consciously take and exhaust other people. And I, I hear this all the time. People say, I have no friends. I, I can't figure it out. Nobody likes me. And I don't know why. And I want to say to them, and actually I have said in the past while, that's because you are being exhausting. It's all about you. You're always trying to elevate yourself and be noticed and feel better about yourself. And the reality is, is that we naturally push those people away that deplete us. I think we all know what I'm talking about. And... The reality is, is that when we try to get our identity from other people and to try to elevate ourselves, everyone else is going to knock us down. We went to Africa, and we were supposed to go with all of the other youth conference directors in Canada so that we could start this network of getting kids sponsored at all these youth conferences. But all the other guys canceled. And so World Vision called me and said, hey, they all canceled. We're still going. And we're going to bring a different guy with us. He's 73. His name is Laurel. 
And I thought, that's not even a man's name. This is Laurel. <laughs> and we get into the vehicle, and Laurel actually changed my life completely. This is a man that for 40 years pastored a church. It became the largest church in Atlantic Canada. And this is what he said to me. He said, now that I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting older and more people are getting to know me, I'm getting semi-famous, and the premier wants to meet with me and all of these business leaders and rich people, and he says, every time I met with them, I would be so self-conscious, I would feel not good enough, and, and I would try so hard to appear funny or handsome or successful, and trying to impress these impressive people just destroyed me. He says, I just stopped trying to impress anyone. And I started instead building them up. Instead of that, every single person I went to, I, I came to encourage them. I came instead to exalt them. And every encounter is about them. So if he'd go meet the premier, he wouldn't care about how he'd present himself. He would humble himself and talk about that person. He would humble himself, pray about who they are, and then just speak life and identity into that person. It took all the pressure off of him. This is absolutely mind-blowing. He says, I'm really good at it because I'm a Christian. And when we have the Spirit, this is what we do, and all the pressure is gone. Celebrate others. Show genuine interest in what they are doing and when they talk. Like when they talk to actually... Think to themselves, oh, like Paul said, consider others better. Every meeting, every person, this is what he does. He, he attempts to exalt them and to lift them up. And you know what this does to jealousy when we do this? It's gone. When I meet with somebody else that I'm intimidated by, if my whole purpose in meeting them is to build them and exalt them, be a Barnabas to them, a giver of life, holding the very words of God and delivering those words of God to them, it doesn't matter who I am all of a sudden. This is so freeing. I love this. Think about the man that Jesus says is the most, um, is the best man ever born of a man. He says it's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was hideous. If you were to meet John the Baptist, you'd be like, this guy is crazy like he took the Nazarite vow so his beard would have been dragging hair he wore camel's hair he ate like grasshoppers so his imagine he would have actually had like stuff out of his teeth like this guy was nuts he actively humbled himself he could have been handsome you ever thought about that what does John the Baptist look like underneath the beard imagine if they had this extreme makeover John the Baptist version and you go out there and you know he's baptizing without a shirt on and whoa look at how handsome that what a haircut John the Baptist that guy is so handsome you never hear that the handsome one in the desert it's it, it was it had nothing to do with him he actively humbled himself because his identity had nothing to do with his image and this freed him to be somebody who who had a great message and had incredible power and authority in his words somebody would come up to him and say man you look terrible are you sick did you have a bad night's sleep and he could say thank you you look great it's a completely different way to look 
And I really believe that when we step into this concept of like Barnabas laying down our petty and useless image and trying to elevate ourselves, he sold that field and he lost all of his status and decided instead to give that status to others. We're free. We're completely free. Our goal is to celebrate everybody else. And you know what? I believe that that in this room, like I said before, there's two kinds of people. There's life givers and there's consumers. I would say that, that in our North American context, nearly all of us are consumers because we're self-conscious. We don't know if we'll be loved unconditionally. And, and we're so used to elevating ourselves that when we are with other people, we try to talk about ourselves the most and and to build ourselves up and be heard and not feel invisible. And when we flip the switch to being a life giver, somebody who, when people are with us, they leave completely refreshed, it changes everything. We take off those cloaks that are weighing us down. And all of a sudden, in our desire to be first, prior, we've chosen to become last, And God himself elevates us. Isn't that wonderful? He says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and a servant to all. And the king of kings comes up and he says, hey, come up to the head of the table with me. Come on up. I'm going to exalt you. People are going to be so drawn to you. You'll be like a, a relationship magnet. This is the church. This is why... This is why we're a city on a hill that's so attractive to the world because we've put down our petty images and who cares? They're all dying. We're going to take communion and uh, this, it's a powerful symbol. The communion's got so many layers to it, doesn't it? But it's this incredible symbol of laying down our identity and picking up the identity of Christ. Scripture says that we're hidden, that, that our identity is hidden with God in Christ. John the Baptist, we think about him and we just think, godly man, he's hidden. Who cares what he looks like under that beard? It's not who he is. 